the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, founder and editor-in-chief of the National Parks Traveler. It's almost November, and for those of you who have followed the Traveler in recent years, you know that it's time for our big year-end fundraiser. It's the biggest fundraiser we conduct all year, and we rely greatly on it to help us pay the bills throughout the year. And so we're going to be talking today about what the Traveler represents and why we need your help. Joining me today is Kim O'Connell, a longtime contributing writer for the National Parks Traveler, as well as Lynn Riddick, who's worked with us in recent years and is our podcast producer extraordinaire. Ladies, welcome back to The Traveler. Thanks. Hi, Kurt. Hi, Kim. Hi, Lynn. Now, we're reaching out to listeners today to talk about The Traveler and the value of The Traveler and the importance of The Traveler. We're in our 18th year as an editorially independent news organization that's focused its coverage on national parks and protected areas on a daily basis. It's really quite a unique media outlet, don't you think, ladies? Absolutely. And please don't turn off this podcast till we tell you more about why it's important to support us and the kind of coverage that we provide and how it brings value to uh, your park life. No, as much as things change, one thing that I find is constant is people's love of the national park system. And if anything, it's growing as we saw through the pandemic. I mean, people really care about our national parks and here we are bringing news and essential coverage about the parks on a daily basis to readers who get to have that armchair experience, you know, from their desks at home and understand what's happening in parks across the country and even in Canada and other parts of the world occasionally. So we provide a lot of cool coverage about parks, which, you know, are are really places that are beloved by the American people and remain that way. They really are. And they're, they're a vital part of our lives, both our natural lives and, and our, our our human lives conducted mostly indoors. And we really need a place to get out into nature and recharge and, and really appreciate what we have around us. You know, I fell in love with national parks as a young boy um, when we took a family vacation driving from New Jersey up to Maine to visit Acadia National Park. And I was, I was struck from that first visit and um, I've carried that on through my life. But um, you know, some people say, you know, why do you delve into politics? Why do you report on politics involving national parks? And the, the sad answer to that is national parks are intertwined with politics. You know, depending on who's in Washington results in how well-funded the parks are or, or are not, or in what type of activities are allowed or not allowed in the national park system or what type of scrutiny different activities get in the national park system. You know, as a, as a daily news organization that follows national parks, one of the issues that has come up in, in recent years, and actually dates back two decades, if you can believe that, is the issue of air tour management plans um, that govern park overflights. I mean, if you're in the backcountry of Yellowstone or in the backcountry of Grand Canyon or, or anywhere, uh, Great Smoky Mountains, and you're trying to enjoy nature, whether it's the sound of a river or a creek or the bird life, and all of a sudden you hear the drone of a plane or the, the wop, 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 wop of a helicopter. 20 years ago, Congress told the National Park Service and the Federal Aviation Administration to come together and create air tour management plans for the national parks. And believe it or not, 20 years later, we're still dragging our feet on that, or the, the, 
the two agencies are dragging their feet on that. And that's one of the issues that National Parks Traveler covers on a daily basis um, or day in, day out basis that the major other media organizations like the New York Times or the Washington Post don't cover on a regular basis. And, you know, it's that type of issue that you as park users, as owners of the national park system, really should be informed about on how those types of plans are being put together. Right. Yeah. The air tour thing is interesting because it kind of gets at the essential conflict that can kind of happen in the national park system between conservation values and recreation values. And it's kind of an a tension that's under been underlying the national park system since its creation. I think it's part of what makes the national park such interesting places because there are these things happening, you know, simultaneously there. We're having a lot of science and conservation. There's peaceful wilderness experiences, but then you also have, you know, crowds and, you know, popular high points to visit and um, recreation activities that people may argue over in terms of how, you know, how well they protect the resource. So all of that is a lot to delve into for journalists and really, really interesting and, you know, requires us to be on the ground covering all that stuff. Kurt, I, I know that this is the 18th year for The Traveler and the past six years, The Traveler has been a nonprofit entity. So why don't you explain what the reasoning uh, was behind turning the traveler into a nonprofit media organization and what benefits that provides to the the reading and listening public. You know, Lynn, um, the bottom line when it came to transitioning from a for-profit entity to a nonprofit entity had to do with the fact that um, I'm not going to live forever. (laughs) Um, Every year it goes by, I get a year older and uh, a a year closer to that quote-unquote retirement age. And my concern was that, you know, if I left the Traveler um, as a for-profit organization, that there would be mission stray. And by that, I mean, when I launched the Traveler way back in 2005, I did so because I really love the national parks. I'm passionate about the national parks. There are so many incredible stories revolving around the national parks, stories of wonderment, as well as stories of concern. And... You know, I had been approached by by other um, outlets that said, "Hey, why don't we merge and you know we can cover you know Forest Service issues or BLM issues or state state park issues." And I just thought that that was the wrong way to go because you know here in the United States we have more than 400 units in the national parks. Globally, I think there's more than 6,000 um, national parks or protected areas, depending on how they're called. And there's so many stories that, that come out of those. And so as a nonprofit, we were able to, to pull together a mission statement uh, that the traveler would follow, whether I'm in charge or, or Kim is in charge or you're in charge or somebody we don't haven't met yet is in charge. And it would stay true to that mission. And um, beyond that, I mean, I don't think readers would like it if there were a bunch of pop-ups on the traveler every time they turn to the website or, you know, pause now while we bring, uh, you know, Coca-Cola or or Toyota or whatnot, you know, these messages from, you know, all these commercial advertisements and whatnot. Being able to rely on reader and listener support so we can bring these stories without all the clutter, if you will, uh, of pop-ups or or whatnot. I mean, one thing I hate when I go to different news sites or, or different websites is you get there and this pop-up 
comes open or this videotape starts running and you've got to search all over the page. Where do I turn this off? Where do I turn this off? And it's such a distraction to be able to go to the National Parks Traveler website and, you know, here's the news, here are features, here's all the different content revolving around national parks and protected areas. If we can keep that mission going forward, I, I think it's all worth it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Let's talk a little bit about the fundraising from last year, this time. It was a very successful effort. So do you have some goals for fundraising this year? You want to surpass last year's? You know, absolutely. Um, we did have a, a great um, turnout last year, and um, we exceeded my wildest expectations. That said, it was probably a pretty low bar expectation-wise. Because when you think about it, I mean, the, the national park system extends from um, the Western Pacific with uh, American Samoa, National Park of American Samoa, goes all the way over to the Caribbean and Virgin Islands National Park, you know, up to Canada, um, down to, you know, practically the tip of, of Texas. That's a large expanse. And, you know, just the sheer logistics of getting um, reporters on the ground is costly. One thing I like to, to say and one thing I, I write to those who, who donate is, you know, your dollars are going right to work to help us expand our coverage. And that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of concern in, in recent years over overcrowding in national parks. And, you know, last year this, this um, story came out, report came out that, you know, we've got over 400 national parks and yet half of the 300 million visitors to the national park system in 2021 went to just 25 national parks. And so one of the things that we were able to do this past year with the money we raised um, during our year-end campaign um, a year ago was make a commitment to visit more of the unsung heroes of the national park system, the, the places that get overlooked and that really shouldn't get overlooked. Um, you know, I was able to take this wonderful road trip into um, Kansas and Nebraska and um, you know, visit places like Scotts Bluff National Monument and Fort Larned National Historic Site and um, Tallgrass Prairie and Homestead National Historical Park of America, places that, you know, in flyover country that people might have heard about, but they didn't really know whether they were worth a visit. And, and so, you know, one thing we've really been working on this year is, is raising the prominence of these places that you don't normally see too much or, or don't think about visiting. I mean, we've written about uh, Jean Lafitte National Historic Site um, down outside of Orleans, New Orleans. Um, Kim was able to take a trip down there and came back with some great stories. Cumberland Island National Seashore, um, Nicodemus National Historic Site, um, Sunset Crater Volcano National Monument. You won't read those stories in the New York Times or the Washington Post or the LA Times. And I can't think of any broadcast stories from those places. And so, you know, with our reader contributions, our listener contributions, you know, we're able to accomplish that and get those stories out there. I know um, I can't think of which park I had gone to, but one of the comments um, my resulting story um, produced from our readers was like, wow, I'd never heard of that place, and it's definitely someplace I want to go to now. And so if we can do that, if we can raise the exposure of some of these places, not only does it hopefully take some of the, the, the crowding off of the Yellowstones and Grand Canyons and Great Smoky Mountains, but it, it raises the awareness of why these places are special and why they were added to the national park system in the first place. Yeah, and I, I've been trying to um, 
concentrate on some of the Texas units since I'm in San Antonio, Texas. And so this past year, I went up the road like an hour and a half drive away to the Lyndon Bain Johnson National Historical Park and was completely blown away. It was just amazing. There was so much stuff there about uh, Johnson's life from his early family, his grandfather and uncle who settled the town to his father and his boyhood there. And it's a complete circle of life of an American president born and buried in the same um, in the same place. And that's just a really fascinating unit of the park that I discovered having lived here so long and never really paying much attention to that to that uh, unit was really um, interesting to me. And being able to hit some of the other ones in Texas, um, I had been to Padre Island National Seashore a number of times, but I hadn't really paid much attention to some of the history there. Like they used to do bombing practice during World War II on the beach, big cattle operations down there, uh, gas and oil drilling. So just learning about those things was much more than a seashore. Kind of fascinating, you know, when you dig into a little bit of history. Um, I hope to go to um, Waco Mammoth uh, National Monument in the coming weeks now that it's gotten a little cooler here in South Texas and, and check out that place. And of course, you know, taking a trip to Big Bend this year was was super exciting and had the opportunity to talk to the park superintendent about all kinds of things happening there and the history of that park and all the special stuff going on there. So we like to think that drilling down into these smaller units is uh, really worthwhile. Um, and we hope that it does motivate people to check out some of the, the smaller places and certainly some of the places with um, amazing history um, and find out why they are uh, protected and part of the Park Service. You know, Lynn, you mentioned Lyndon um, Baines Johnson, and that was one of our most popular podcasts this past year. So kudos to you for taking the time to go up there and the, and the great interviews you came back with. Um, it, it's you always. Know, I was going to say about that is listening to you talk about that, Lynn, is how diverse the national park system is. I mean, how there is something for everybody in this national park system, whether you are interested in presidential history or civil war, revolutionary history colonial history or, you know, indigenous people history. There's a lot of history and something for everyone. There's parks that deal with, you know, the arts and other aspects of, you know, American life. And so I find that really fascinating about the park system. And I love that the traveler delves into that so that just like the parks provide something for everyone, I think the traveler does as well for the same reason, because we are, you know, making a strong effort to cover all these lesser known stories. And so I think someone coming onto the Traveler website might be for the first time, might be pleasantly surprised to see that it isn't just about Old Faithful at Yellowstone. You get to see these, you know, lesser known stories and maybe they will find a niche or something that, you know, reflects their own particular interests there as well. So I think that's super cool. No, it's very cool. And what what readers have to know and listeners have to know is that the Traveler only has one full-time staffer and we're able to bring you all this diverse coverage from weekly podcasts to audio postcards to, to feature stories to, to projects, multi-article projects um, that span the national park system. And, you know, every, every time I think about that, I think about how much better the Traveler could be if we had a, a small staff of three or four 
to concentrate on these issues on a, a day in day out basis rather than just one person trying to to manage all these things and as the traveler has gotten more and more known out there um, our our inbox my inbox gets filled up with more and more requests can you cover this can you cover that and right now we can't cover it all because there is just one person and so just to be um, fully transparent our budget for this past year was um, less than $150,000. And if you look at the content on the Traveler, if you spend, uh, whether it's a day or whether it's a week, you know, tuning in to see what we're covering, you'll realize that we really are a pretty good bang for your buck and that we really try and, and you know, put that money into stories, into, into podcasts. And, you know, we've got so many more visions um, in terms of videos and, and more um, more diversity and more breadth of, the, of our coverage. And um, one person can't do it alone. And um, that's why we reach out to, to listeners and readers um, at least once a year. And again, this is uh, our main fundraiser. It runs from November 1st through December 31st. And um, there's some matching dollars out there. But at the end of the day, um, while we did pick up a couple small grants um, in the past year to help pay for some of this coverage, it really does come down to the people who are passionate about national parks and protected areas and will want to learn more, whether it's learning about the, the wonders of some of the cave systems in the national park system or the national seashores or some of the concerns that politics are having on the parks. And talking about some of the wonders, um, you know, Kim, you recently wrote a piece that um, about sea turtles and hatchlings and, and how the temperature of the, the sand affects the sex ratio coming out of those um, sea turtle nests. And it, it's both a, a story of wonderment as well as concern because of what climate change is doing. I was just thinking about that story. Um, I really loved working on that story because the pictures that we ran with it are just so adorable because they feature baby sea turtles and who doesn't love baby sea turtles. And um, I opened the story with, with a kind of in words, painting a picture of the birth of a, you know, a nest kind of being a bunch of turtles being born in a nest and them coming out of the sand. And that's an, a phenomenon known as a boil colloquially because they're <laughs> sort of boiling up out of the sand and how they instinctively go towards the ocean. And I was thinking about that story because as I've probably mentioned on previous podcasts, like I grew up going to Cape Hatteras National Seashore, like just like, was it Acadia? That was your first park experience, Kurt? Right. Yeah, my first park experience was Cape Hatteras. I mean, I started going there with my family when I was, you know, less than 10 years old. And I remember just absolutely falling in love with the fact that this was a place that had culture and history and nature combined. But one aspect of that national seashore that I wasn't really that familiar with were the sea turtles, the sea turtle populations there, how they, you know, we were affected by climate change. And so I really appreciated doing this story um, for the re reasons that you described, because it allowed me to sort of get excited about sea turtles and baby sea turtles, but also because it allowed me to delve into what's happening with the sea turtles. And basically, you know, that basically they're, the sea turtles are um, temperature dependent in terms of the sex of the babies. And so when we have a warming climate, you have more uh, female turtles. And in fact, there were headlines this summer because um, in some areas of Florida, there are no male turtles being born at all. And so obviously you don't need as many males as females to sustain a healthy 
turtle population, but you need some. <laughs> That's just reproduction 101. And so it was, you know, kind of alarming to see that this trend, you know, in Florida, it's, that's been the case for a long time. And scientists, you know, were well aware of that. But now you're seeing that sort of um, sex imbalance move up the coast. And so all those national seashores on the, in the southeast are starting to see this. And it's fairly alarming. And it's, the scientists have run the data. We've got concrete numbers about how um climate change and warming temperatures are affecting these populations. So I just love writing that kind of story because it does combine kind of meaty science stuff with that more, you know, kind of wonderment angle on the national parks. I think that's what a lot of people love about our coverage and about the national parks themselves, because there's all these kind of different things going on there at once. It's just kind of a, a feast for the mind and for the senses. Yeah, talking about the, the sea turtles there at the Outer Banks, uh, Cape Hatteras. Outer Banks Forever um, this year, the, the nonprofit organization that, that works to raise money for projects at uh, Cape Hatteras and Fort Raleigh and, and Wright Brothers National Memorial. They had a, an interesting um, fundraiser, Adopt a Sea Turtle Nest. And for $100, you know, you would virtually adopt a sea turtle nest. And at the end of the year, at the end of the nesting season, they would send you, uh, here's what happened with your nest and how many hatchlings came out and what type of turtles it were, it was, um, what species. And they just um, wrapped up um, kind of a, a nesting year-end report. And um, along with having 229 people um, adopt um, sea turtle nests there at Cape Hatteras, um, there were, um, let me see here, make sure I get this right, more than 378 sea turtles came ashore at Cape Hatteras to nest. And as a result, 28,000 hatchlings made their way back into the Atlantic Ocean. So you've got a win-win there. You've got uh, all those sea turtle hatchlings going back out into the ocean. And then you've got um, you know the, the Friends Group um, raising some money to continue its operations to add that margin of excellence, so to speak, to the, the national parks there. Um, really... Um, it was an interesting campaign. I thought it was a really good one. Um, and it's glad to see how successful it was. You know, Kim, I know one of the other stories you're looking into is um, the Lost Colony at Fort Raleigh. Um, you know, here we are, was it 400 years, 450 years, and nobody knows exactly what happened to the Lost Colony. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a perennially fascinating story and just an enduring mystery. There's been some interesting archaeology going on there. So I'm going to be working on a story soon that delves into some recent, you know, discoveries there and, you know, what, what they tell us after all these, you know, centuries about what might have happened to the lost colony. Um, it's, you know, such a fascinating part of American history. I actually uh, stayed not far from Fort Raleigh this summer when I went down to Cape Hatteras. And so I got to stay kind of on that side of the Outer Banks for the first time. And after usually staying down on Hatteras Island closer to the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, it was a completely different experience to be um, staying, you know, closer to the sort of inner islands where more wooded and a little more protected and get more of a sense of what it might have been like all those hundreds of years ago, a little bit more protected because there is a barrier island in front of Roanoke Island where the Lost Colony was. So it was really fascinating. I look forward to doing that story. Well, hopefully you can uh, solve the mystery for, for our readers and listeners. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you 
Well, Kurt, going back to the adopt a turtle nest, um, maybe we could offer a adopt a traveler topic. So we could uh, see if we could get uh, contributors to, you know, adopt a topic that they'd like to see more of. Yeah, yeah. No, that's one of the the hard parts that uh, as, a, as a nonprofit news organization, I mean, what, what can we offer you? Uh, I mean, you know, water bottles are nice and baseball caps are nice. And uh, we've offered those in the past and we might offer those again in the future. You know, a lot of a lot of funding dollars seem to go to boots on the ground projects, such as you know protecting sea turtle nests or or um, improving hiking trails or campgrounds or, or um, paying for bear boxes to keep uh, grizzly bears and brown bears away from human foodstuffs. And there's a, a warm fuzzy feeling about that. I mean, what warm fuzzy feeling can we offer listeners and readers? Well, you know, we're gonna write this story about. The Lost Colony. We're going to have, you know, Lynn report from Waco Mammoth um, National Monument, and you know they're they're not exactly boots on the ground projects, but at the same time, these are issues and and topics that that should resonate with um, park visitors, with those who love the national park system, and you know we raise the the prominence of these places as well as we raise the prominence of some of these. Um, projects that, that are worthy projects, and I'm not taking anything away from those boots-on-the-ground projects, but as important as they are, news is power, as they say, and you really need to be kept informed on what's going on across the national park system. And um, yeah, I don't know, adopt, adopt the traveler this year. Make a pledge. <laughs> so, Kurt, you mentioned um, matching contributions. Explain what you have lined up for that. And also, uh, I would think that um, that'd be a great time to uh, to contribute if you know that your dollars are going to be matched. Right. Our, our fundraising campaign um, dovetails with a, a national fundraising campaign to raise charitable dollars for nonprofit news organizations. And, and through that campaign, which is called News Match, we get a dollar for dollar match um, of up to $15,000. And that might creep up a little bit as... Um, um, the, the people Did you say $50,000 or $15,000? I, I wish it was 50. I wish it was 50. It's only 15,000. And, um, you know, it might creep up a little bit because there's always ongoing efforts to, to get, um, new foundations or organizations or, or companies to contribute more money, um, for nonprofit news organizations. And, um, so right now, you know, we're looking at being able to match at least 15,000 and, as as welcome as that is, it really is just a a, a small bit of change um, when you're talking about a um, at least a nationwide news organization that is trying to to keep the American public and, and foreign visitors informed on what's going on in the national parks and um, what new wonders are being discovered in the parks and what explorations or adventures they can take in them. Um, it's a, it's a constant struggle. Well, I think the traveler does a lot for a little, and like we keep stressing, imagine what else we could do. We could do so much more with your support. I know that we went to Florida earlier this year, and we've talked about that on previous podcasts, but when you were talking about the matching dollars, I was thinking again about with the pot of money that we had, which, you know, was nice, but, you know, not a huge amount, how much we turn that into quality content on the traveler. What did we have? Just just under a week or five days in 
the Everglades. And it's amazing the number of stories that we produced. There were, you know, podcasts that came out of that, audio postcards and just like, it's a, it's really amazing. It's kind of like you give us a little bit and we turned it into a lot like magically. And it's really remarkable what we're able to do. Um, and I think that just speaks to, you know, the tone that you set, Kurt, you know, as the head of National Parks Traveler and then all your contributing writers, which I'm one of, you know, really support the mission and want to give it our all and milk as much as we can out of every park experience that we have. So, so I feel like whatever dollars we do get, we really get a lot out of it. We really put that, that dollar to work. So I hope people will donate for that reason. Yeah, we really do. Um, you know, it, it might, it might sound glamorous and certainly there are fun aspects to these these visits but you know when when we go on the road we work from sunrise to sundown and i mean i remember um this past summer when i i went on the road into nebraska and and kansas i'd spent all day driving from scotts bluff national uh, monument in um, western nebraska to eastern nebraska beatrice nebraska to visit homestead national historical park and um long day on in the car um got to the park i was able to spend some time at the park Got back to my um, motel room, and um, I got a note from uh, Yellowstone National Park that uh, the, the superintendent, Camp Sholley, wanted to talk to me. And um, I was thinking, boy, it was a long day, but, you know, I really, I got to take advantage of this. And so, you know, I spent another couple hours talking to the superintendent and, and writing a story about that. You know, looking at Everglades, um, you know, we, we produced at least four major features on that, I believe, Kim, um, Melaleuca, the um, hole in the donut where they're um, slowly um, eradicating um, an invasive plant species um, from the park. Um, We talked about um, endangered butterflies. We got stung by fire ants. (laughs) It was so glamorous. (laughs) It was so glamorous. And, you know, we spent time um, walking up to our our thighs in, in slews and um, got to spend time with the superintendent understanding some of the challenges that they're facing there with invasive species. And so it might sound glamorous. It's not always glamorous at all by any stretch of the imagination. And neither is the coverage, but it's important coverage just the same. I mean, recently, one of our contributing writers, Lori Sonkin, had this wonderful piece on harmful algal blooms, algal blooms. Not exactly a sexy topic, but it's a very important topic as um, national parks um, across the country are dealing with these, um, in some cases, toxic algal blooms in freshwater um, sources, lakes and ponds, and and even rivers. Um, At Zion National Park in the Virgin River, there was a a toxic algal bloom a year ago where a a family had gone down and their dog was playing in the river and the dog got into this toxic soup and ended up dying. And I believe it was a beautiful, beautiful Siberian husky and yeah, it's it's not a sexy story, but it's certainly an important one if you want to know what's going on with the national parks and the health of the national park system um, and how the Park Service is combating these problems and, and why the agency and its stakeholders you know, need your support. You know, one thing we started actually four years ago, threatened and endangered parks. And for years, we've heard about, you know, the most threatened rivers in the in the country. And nobody was looking at, you know, what are the threats to the national park system? And so we decided at the Traveler to, to launch a year-end series examining, you know, the most threatened and endangered national parks. And it's, it's somewhat subjective because there's really no easy measuring 
formula you can use. I mean, you can certainly point at, at, at things such as invasive species or oil wells pressing in on park ecosystems. But we're coming up on our fourth um, threatened and endangered species package. And um, Kim, I think you're, you're looking into some of the cultural historical sites and some of the threats that they're facing. Right. Yeah. And again, you know, it's something I'm going to be delving into in the next few weeks, but you know, there's quite a few threats facing cultural and historic sites. And so I'm going to be doing kind of a roundup story about that. You know, we're also going to be looking at um, endangered species and how national park units benefit species that might be listed as endangered or threatened and how these park units can actually help bring those populations back from the so-called brink. And so there's a lot of lot of really important stories out there, as well as the fun stories. I mean, we provide checklists on when you're visiting different national parks across the country, what, what you should definitely make sure you take a look for. You know, you don't want to miss this or you don't want to miss that or uh, three days in um, Lassen Volcanic National Park. What might you do for those three days? So it's, it's not always um, political coverage or, or hard news coverage. You know, we're really looking to expand stuff. Um, in terms of you know the, the great issues and, and storylines that come out of national parks, when I was on my um, my road trip across um, Nebraska and Kansas, I ran into this artist at um, Homestead National Historical Park, who was making quilts that were not quilts to throw on your bed, but quilts to hang on your wall as artworks, and um, you know not as big as a, a queen size quilt, but maybe a, a three foot by four foot artwork that goes on your wall. And what she would do, she would take uh, a picture of um, someplace in the park that struck her. And then she would build a quilt around that using different types of materials and some, some cases um, paints and dyes to bring out some color and, and stitching to, to create um, some structure and whatnot. And it was really, um, a unique endeavor that this woman had had embarked upon and it just goes to show you how how park can strike people and and what it spurs in them what it what it taps into the creativity i mean i just had a, a fun time writing that story it was such an enjoyable story and she was such a wonderful artist to share her time and her talents with me and those are some of the fun stories that we get to come away with lynn you know you recently went back to tallgrass prairie i guess my visit there really inspired you to go visit Tallgrass Prairie. Um, and you got to spend some time with the superintendent and go out and check out the bison herd there and walk through the Tallgrass Prairie because I went in um, June when it was only about knee high and um, it was a bit higher when you were there, wasn't it? Yeah, it's cool. I guess I sort of expected that it would be like walking through a cornfield, but the grasses, like the, I think they call it big blue stem and Indian grass and some of the other um, switchgrass they are just like sort of skinny little stalks that truly were uh, seven feet high, six feet over my head. And I guess, you know, you, it's not like a cornfield, but you see these stalks sprouting up from uh, all kinds of other plants and flowers and shrubs. And it, it was just a really interesting place. I did a lot of hiking. I got to talk to the superintendent about the bison herd there which is unique and the whole prairie is unique. So I, that kind of brings to mind too, another thing that I like about our coverage, especially our podcasts, is that we we talk to so many park superintendents or park rangers or interpretive rangers, and we get to showcase their expertise. And it 
strikes me as amazing every single time I, I, I interview folks like that because they just have tremendous depth of knowledge, their enthusiasm, their love of their subject matter, their love of their park and talking to people is just very apparent and very, you know, the enthusiasm is contagious. And I really like that. There's really some incredible knowledge out there across the park system. And let me throw this out there to our listeners. Um, You know, this past year, one of the things we we focused on was trying to, to reach out to some of the smaller units in the national park system or the overlooked units that have fascinating stories. And we're going to continue to do that in the years ahead because they are such vital units and, and really interesting places that um, capture nature or, or cultures or, or American history. And they're, they're very worthwhile to visit. But we also want to get into the personnel of the National Park Service, because as Lynn mentioned, there are so many incredible people out there who are wonderful interpreters, who are wonderful scientists, uh, geologists, um, botanists, archaeologists, paleontologists, and they all have unique stories to tell. And if we could bring those to the forefront, uh, the pages of the traveler, to really create a personality for the National Park Service, because you know everybody looks at, oh, you know, it's this Washington agency. That's just really a small part of what the National Park Service is. The National Park Service are those 20,000 employees across the the system. And whether they're full-time, year-round employees or seasonal employees, they all have fascinating stories to tell. And if you know of somebody who you think really would be great to profile on The Traveler, please drop us a line um, either at the end of this uh, podcast, you know, in the comment section on the pages, or just send us a, a quick email to news at nationalparkstraveler.org, because that's one thing we really want to try and focus a little bit more on in, in the year ahead. And I know, um, Kim, that's um, dear to your heart, too, because there are so many interesting stories out there in the, the staff of the National Park Service. I, I love writing about people. It's, and I think we all do. I think journalists really like talking to people. And so it's, fun to discover a cool personality. And I was just going to say the exact same thing before Lynn said it too. So we were of like mind because when you were mentioning all these superintendents that we've talked to, it's just great when we get that kind of access. And that's another value that the traveler brings to our readers is that readers might come across a park ranger and that's wonderful, but they rarely get a chance to talk to a park superintendent. So we're sort of like a proxy for them to talk to a park superintendent and get their take on what's happening in that national park. And like Lynn said, they're often very knowledgeable and very passionate. I mean, I'm thinking back to uh, Pedro, superintendent at Everglades, where we had such a lovely chat. Like he sat down and we had, you know, we're at the Everglades. You had a nice chat with him and it was under the shade of a beautiful tree with the Everglades kind of in the distance. It was a lovely afternoon for, to talk about some serious stuff, but it was, wonderful for him to take the time to talk with us. And we really appreciate when that happens, but there's so many other personalities out there that I really look forward to interviewing. No, it'd be a lot of fun. And um, hopefully a year from now, we'll be able to point back to the the different personalities across the, the park system and so many different jobs out there that, you know, you would never imagine apparently in Yellowstone national park. And I bet you in some of the other large national parks as well, you know, wildlife unfortunately gets hit by motorists driving by and there are staff whose job it is to drive around the park and pick up these animal carcasses and deposit them somewhere out of sight. Strange story, but you know, it, it might be a, an interesting story to, 
interview this individual as they're, they're going about the, their, their task in the national parks. I don't know. Kind of a strange one. I, I bet that person is super dedicated to that and probably sees that as a way of giving this creature back to the national park. I bet you they take it quite seriously because um, it reminds me of the park ranger I was with when I wrote a piece on feral hogs at Great Smokies in 2021. I mean, they often have to deal with, you know, dead hogs and that kind of thing. And they get to see what he called, you know, the circle of life. And I remember he said the circle of life at Great Smokies is particularly fast. There's a lot of predators out there. It's the really, you know, biodiverse national park. It, it's quite a serious endeavor to deal with wildlife in all stages of their lives. So, you know, it is a kind of a quirky story and a little bit different, but I bet you that person has a fascinating backstory and takes their job very seriously. Right. And the traveler also covers the efforts to construct wildlife bridges, wildlife crossings. We've done uh, pieces about the Great Smokies and having to protect the black bear and elk down there that are getting hit by vehicles and, and all the many different partners that are teaming up to solve those problems. And also what's happening in the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area in Southern California to protect the uh, mountain lions that get struck by cars and the, the big bridge that is being built over the, the highway there. So we cover those stories and they are encouraging to see that people are recognizing these issues with wildlife getting killed and uh, are, are teaming up with other like-minded organizations to solve the problem. Well, ladies, I appreciate you spending time um, with me today to talk about The Traveler and the value that we, we bring readers and listeners, uh, that we hope that we bring readers and listeners. We are always looking for new story ideas. Um, again, as I mentioned, you know, personalities. Um, if you know somebody in the Park Service who you think would be a great story um, on The Traveler, please let us know. Send us a, an email at news at nationalparkstraveler.org and um, we'll add it to our to-do list. You know, unlike public radio stations, we're not going to be here every day with our hands out or a hat in our hand asking for cash. Um, it's not something we do. We'll have uh, occasional stories on the, the Traveler website reminding you that this is our biggest fundraiser of the year and we really need your support to expand our coverage and, and to um, visit more units in the National Park System and explore more topics. So the best thing you can do along with supporting National Parks Traveler um, via donation is to share this podcast with one of your friends who isn't aware of National Parks Traveler or who might be interested in supporting our efforts to bring you news and feature coverage from around the National Park System. Well, Kurt, I think Kim and I both feel strongly that supporting the traveler is a very worthwhile thing to do to, to keep the good content coming and uh, the eye on the National Parks provided to our, our listeners and our readers. And uh, I, I think it's a great way to uh, invest your money and good coverage of the parks. I agree. Thank you. Yeah, they are such vital places um, that we hold dear and that um, hopefully will continue to be um, preserved for future generations that um, can enjoy them years from now, much as we enjoy them today. Thanks for, for making time today, ladies. And um, Look forward to reconnecting down the road. Thanks, Thanks Kurt. Thanks, it's always Liz. fun to talk about the traveler.
So if you appreciate national parks and protected areas as much as we do, and believe it's vital to have editorially independent coverage of these places on a daily basis, we hope that over the coming two months, you'll support our efforts to expand our coverage with a donation. You can find links to our donation pages on nationalparkstraveler.org, or you can send a check to the National Parks Traveler, Post Office Box 980-452, Park City, Utah, 84098. Kim and Lynn, thanks so much for joining me today, and I look forward to your stories in the weeks and months ahead. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.